0: Good morning. Good morning Would you all pray with me for a moment, please? Father, we, we come before you at this time praising your high and holy name. We, we need uh, your help uh, very much. Many of our people are, are sick, Many are getting by. We ask, Father, that you bless our sick. We pray that you'll help them to return to their much-wanted health. We love them uh, so very much, and it's so troubling to us to watch them suffer. So once again, we ask with all our hearts that you would heal them of their infirmity. But as always, your will be done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I hope you all are doing well today. I've had a pretty good yesterday and today, and I'm, I'm feeling good about all that. I wanna talk about uh, a subject today that I know everyone here is familiar with, uh, not this. Uh, but I, I begin with this. I remember back uh, when Bill Quentin and Monica Lewinsky were the news back in 98, uh, I remember not so much what the president did. What I remember mostly is uh, people's reaction to it, and it was, uh, was kind of shocking. If that had been most people, the reaction would have been very different. But uh, given the situation, the reaction was not really what I thought it would be. <clears throat> the, if, you, if you are not perfectly sinless yourself, you have no right to judge others. That's kind of what came out of all that. Uh, He was without sin among you, let him cast the first stone, and you're not perfect, therefore you can't judge another. Uh, There were so, so many people, even preachers, who were uh, going to the microphones, uh, telling us that we have uh, no right to judge anyone. And most people uh, relied on John chapter 8 as their uh, proof for that particular position. Some of the arguments made uh, to minimize Clinton's actions, oh, well, we all sin, we all sin. Uh, well, Jesus did not condemn and neither should we. Well, since no one is without sin, no one has the right to judge. There can be no discipline of apostate Christians. We have no right to discipline a person save for adultery or something of that nature. Uh, it went on and on. Uh, the question I posed before you today, is a Christian to judge another person's actions? Are we to judge the actions of others? And that's what we want to think about for just a few moments. The details of the narrative need to be carefully examined. I'm going to put a different twist on John 8 and what you've heard from me before. Uh, I can do that. Uh, present it with a slightly different angle and um, see what you think about it when we get done. I'd like to begin reminding us that we are to contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly means to wrestle for, fight on behalf of, what the faith. The faith is the gospel system, New Testament Christianity, if you will. We are to contend earnestly for the Christian system. We are to defend it with all our might, as did Paul the Apostle. He said, "I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The Lord wanted him to defend the gospel, and so should we. We are to defend the gospel, especially when it's been perverted by others, and that I hope to do this morning." Uh, in John eight, where the timing is the feast of the tabernacles, uh, it's about A.D. 29. In uh, just about six months, the Lord would be captured and crucified. But uh, that's kind of the time frame. We're in the city of Jerusalem celebrating uh, this particular feast. Now, early in the morning, uh, Jesus came again into the temple. He went to the Mount of Olives for the night. The next morning, he came down off the mount. He reentered the city once again. And all the people came to him. That's uh, hyperbole. All the people didn't come to him. The idea is a lot of people. There's a lot of people. More than likely, he was in the court of the Gentiles. That was the biggest room in the temple for this kind of purpose. And more than likely, it was full to capacity with all the people who came in to hear this man from Nazareth. He was was very popular. And everybody wanted to hear from him. So people stuffed into the court of the Gentiles, and there they were listening to Jesus. Jesus sat down and taught. I'm standing and teaching. The Jews would sit down and teach. They did it different than us. Uh, that was the proper posture for the day, to sit down and then teach the word of God. And then there was a commotion that interrupted the teacher. The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. As Jesus was teaching his Bible class, all of a sudden you 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 hear a commotion, several people talking, uh, maybe fussing, probably pulling this woman, trying to get her to come into the uh, midst of this crowd because uh, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, had a plan. Who were the scribes? Well, these people are also known as the lawyers in the New Testament. They are the legal minds. These are the guys, um, a lot of them would uh, copy the text the Old Testament text, the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, they would copy the text uh, and produce another Bible. Okay, that was their job. There were a number of men that were engaged in that work and it was very slow, of course, trying to produce more Bibles. But most of the scribes, these were the intellectuals. They were uh, very well educated. They probably knew the Bible better than anybody else. And there were also the Pharisees. The Pharisees was a denomination of Judaism, uh, like today you've got denominations of Christianity. You have uh, the church that Jesus built, and then you've got these uh, spin-offs from the church that Jesus built, and they're called denominations. Okay, well that's what the Pharisees were. They were a denomination. In the first century, there was probably about six thousand Pharisees uh, that was uh, known of and they were the single most powerful body amongst the Jews. Uh, they wielded a great deal of power, even more than the Sadducees. The Sadducees controlled the high seats, but the Pharisees, uh, they, they had the power uh, among the people. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, these, these are religious leaders, uh, they, you gotta keep in mind, don't forget, keep the te- context in mind, don't forget, who's doing what to whom. Okay, they dragged this woman in the midst of this crowd. People have gathered all around. And they bring her before Jesus, and they said this woman was caught in adultery. Adultery is uh, an illicit act that involves at least one married person. Uh, The woman could have been married, or the men she was with could have been married, we don't know, okay? But there was somebody in this sordid affair that was married, that's why it's called uh, adultery rather than fornication. There was a woman caught in adultery and when they set her in the midst, they said to him. Now let's get an idea of what the situation was. Jesus is sitting probably uh, somewhere around the middle of the room He's sitting where it's most convenient for the people to gather around and hear him as he speaks. Around him are the people that have crowded into the court of the Gentiles. Uh, and they're, they're listening in this most wonderful Bible class uh, that was being taught on that particular day. Well, then the commotion arose. They pushed their way through the crowd. And suddenly, before Jesus, before the crowd, was this woman the scribes, and the Pharisees. Keep this picture in your mind as we proceed because this is the scenario that was involved at this time. They dragged the woman into the midst of the crowd where the whole world could see her and know what she had done. And then they said to Jesus' teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, you know what that means. Strange, isn't it, to get caught in the very act? You know, as a rule, people had to do stuff like that. But the scribes and the Pharisees, apparently, they knew where this man and woman was. They knew where this was taking place. They must have busted into the room, the house, whatever it was, and they grabbed a woman and they snaked her off to pose her before Jesus as uh A visual aid, if you will. This woman was caught in adultery in the very act; no doubt about her guilt. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, and he did. Leviticus chapter twenty, verse ten says, "The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and adulterer shall surely be put to death." That's the law. Moses commanded that this happen. Now, Jesus, what do you say? You know, really, if Moses commanded that she be stoned, what do they care what Jesus thinks? Why are they even asking him the question? They should have taken her out and stoned her. That's what Moses commanded, was it not? But they didn't do what Moses said. Instead, they brought this woman to Jesus. Something something doesn't smell right. Something doesn't smell right. They brought this woman to Jesus and said, what do you say about this situation? They wanted him to make a decision. They feigned to be protectors of the law. And the law did command that such a person be condemned to death by stoning. It's all true. But these protectors of the law did a lot of things that were strange, like bringing the woman to Jesus. They caught her in the very act, case closed, take her out and stone her to death. That's all she wrote. The scribes and the Pharisees feigned their concern for the sanctity of the law. They didn't care about the law. They had one thing on their mind and one thing only, and we'll discover that in just a moment. Why did they bring the woman to Jesus? Jesus was a rabbi, not a judge. It wasn't his place to judge. It wasn't his place to pass sentence. He was a teacher. He was a Bible teacher, a rabbi. He can't pass judgment on anybody. law Moses already did that. So why did they bring her to him? There was some reason they brought her to him. They wanted something out of him. The second question is, where was the man? Now, let's read the law one more time. The adulterer and the adulteress shall be stoned to death. Now, they caught them in the very act. That means the man was there. They caught the man and they caught the woman. But they only brought the woman. Why didn't they bring the man? Now, if they were going to keep the law of Moses, they had to bring the man and stone him also. If they didn't bring the man and stone him, they weren't complying with the law of Moses. They were violating it. So these men who feigned to be protectors of the law, they're actually breaking the law and they broke the law, they brought her to Jesus because of some reason. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. They took this woman, and they set her up before all these Jerusalem citizens, They exposed her crime against God. It had nothing to do with her. She was just a piece of meat available for the occasion because they wanted to put Jesus to the test and they wanted to trap him. What was the trap? He was going to have to choose Moses or mercy. And this is what they were waiting for. If Jesus chose Moses, take her out and we'll stone her to death. Then the people who looked at Jesus as a teacher of love, compassion, and mercy, they were going to think differently about him. Because this this teacher of mercy and grace and love is suddenly willing in a moment to take this woman out and stone her to death. It would have effect on a lot of people who were interested in what he had to say. But secondly, if he said that, all these scribes and Pharisees had to do was go to the Roman authorities and say this, this, this Jesus has, has, has raised the people up and they're going to take the life of this woman. You see, according to Roman law, the Jews could not kill a person. If a person was to be put to death, they had to go to the Romans and let the Romans do it. If Jesus seemed to be rousing up the people to get them to go out and stone this woman to death, the Romans would arrest him and he would be in a great deal of trouble. That's one thing these guys hoped for. Now if he didn't choose to side with Moses, if he he stayed true to form, he would say let's forgive her. Let's forgive her. Let's be merciful. And if he took that position, they would accuse him of violating the law of Moses because Moses said stone her to death. If Jesus said let's let's be merciful to this woman, they would have accused him of violating disgracing The law of Moses. They had him. He couldn't win. He was done. He was done. Well, Jesus, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. He heard, but he was acting like he didn't hear. Here he is in the midst of this theological question and instead of answering it, he just stoops down and he starts He starts writing in the dirt. What did he write? I don't know. Nobody knows. Whatever he wrote, it remains in history. But imagine the scene at the time, the victorious gloat of the scribes and the Pharisees. Ah, we got him where we want him now. They were feeling good about themselves. They were accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. They were going to get rid of this Nazarene and he'd be out of their hair forever. There was the guilty and the humiliated woman standing there. I don't know what was going through her mind. If I was her, the only thing I would have been thinking about was running and trying to get out of that situation. It was uh, most uncomfortable having all them people staring at her. There was the seemingly defeat of Jesus. The people probably thought the Lord doesn't know what to say. He hasn't got an answer. So he's just acting like he can't hear, hoping it'll go away in just a moment. And then there was the hush that would come over a stunned crowd. They didn't know what was going on or why this happened, but everybody had their ear stretched out there because they wanted to hear what the conclusion to this event was. It was a strained situation. They continued asking Jesus and he continued writing in the dirt. What do you say? Say something. Give us an answer. Have you no answer? Finally he raised himself up and he said to them, "Now remember, <laughs> who is them? Who's he talking to? See most most I've, I've heard so many preachers He's talking to the whole crowd of people. No, no, he's not. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, these were the people that brought the woman to her. These were the people that asked the question. If Jimmy asked me a question and I answered Jimmy, I'm not talking to you all. I'm talking to Jimmy. And what I say to Jimmy may not be applicable to you all. It may have nothing to do with you. And Jesus was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. They asked the question. And he was going to answer the question. But I want you to remember who he's talking to. It's not everyone. It's only the scribes and the Pharisees. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. You scribes and Pharisees that brought this woman in here, Whoever among you has no sin, you cast a stone. Now they had to think about that. You see, the law required that the witnesses cast the first stone. These guys were told by the Lord to keep the law to cast the first stone. If you have no sin, if your hands aren't dirty, if you have nothing to do with this sordid situation... Go ahead, cast the stone. And they, they, they started looking at each other. They, they had a problem. The problem was their hands weren't really clean. So while they tried to figure this out, Jesus just stooped back down and he started riding in the earth again. Remember the context again. The scribes and Pharisees pretend to be defenders of the law the woman was caught in adultery in the very act. They brought a lawbreaker to the rabbi instead of to a judge, which makes no sense whatsoever, and they didn't produce the adulterous man or men, whatever the case might be. For all I know, it could have been a group of scribes and Pharisees. I don't know, but it's possible. Whoever is without sin among you, he's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to these men who have charged this woman with sin. Whichever of you has no sin, whichever of you is not involved in this matter, you cast the first stone. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you cast the stone. Now, he's got to be talking about this matter. Keep in mind, all people sin. All people are guilty of sin. All people at least have been guilty of sin. And we're all susceptible to sinning again. Moses gave the law that the adulterer and the adulteress is supposed to be stoned to death. If a person who is a sinner can't cast the first stone, why did Moses give the command? He gave the command because a a sinner could cast the first stone, provided they were innocent. at the time they cast the stone. The scribes and the Pharisees hadn't cast the stone yet. Those who heard what Jesus said, they were convicted by their conscience. They were guilty. They knew they were guilty. They had done things that were wrong. They had done things that weren't right. And if they cast the stone, they'd be the next to have the stone cast at because they're as guilty as the woman they've accused because of their part in this sordid affair, whatever it may have been. We know they did this all just to set the woman up, which was a crime in and of itself. And they're thinking, they're thinking very hard. They went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. The old man in the crowd, he wasn't going to cast the stone. No, nope. he had guilt on him. And then went the next old man, and then went the two young guys that helped him. They all left. The woman had sinned. There's no doubt about that. But so had the scribes and Pharisees. And there's no doubt about that either. And that prohibited them from casting the stone. And that's why Jesus said what he said. Whoever has no sin, go ahead, cast the stone. He knew none of them could. Jesus was left alone, the woman was standing there in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one standing there any longer but the woman. And he said to her, woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Her response, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does Jesus mean by that statement when he said, neither do I condemn you? She committed sin, she was guilty, and she would be judged by divine law. There's no doubt about that. But Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. What was he talking about? The meaning of it, and I'll put it in these words, but you'll get the idea of what the meaning of it is. I am not an agent of the judicial system. I haven't the authority to pass judgment on you. In essence, he's saying it's not my place to condemn you. That's the legal system. It'd be like me judging a murder trial in this building. If we're going to judge a murderer, we've got to take him down to Gainsborough and do it in the court. You can't do it here in the church house with some preacher. Well, Jesus couldn't condemn her either because that was not his role. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about forgiving her. He's just saying, I can't pass a judicial ruling on you. That's going to be up to the court. Next, he said, go, go about your way and stop sinning. And that's all he said. John 8 does not prohibit righteous judgment, but it does prohibit unrighteous judgment. That's what it's all about. I went through Friday afternoon, I went through I don't know how many sermons on the internet. I had to have went through at least 75 to 100. And every one of them had the very same conclusion that Jesus was prohibiting judgment. No, that's not what he did. He prohibited unrighteous judgment. He who is without sin among you. These unrighteous hypocrites had pronounced judgment on this woman. And Jesus, in essence, said they're not fit to. But he wasn't forbidding judging. Not at all. In Romans 2 and 1, Paul said, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You're guilty of the same thing you're condemning, therefore. How can you condemn them? You hypocrite. Don't judge, you hypocrites. But not everybody. He's talking to a specific group of people. Consider the following things. Paul taught that there is none righteous, no not one, Romans three and ten. This included Paul. He sometimes engaged in unrighteous thought and conduct, Romans seven, fifteen. The apostle had to fight within himself to keep his passions under control, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, and 7. In other words, there was a part of him that wanted to sin, a part of him that didn't want to sin, and he had to fight himself to suppress the passions, because sometimes the passions become exceedingly passionate. He knew that as long as he lived in the flesh, he would never achieve a permanent state of perfection, Philippians chapter 3, and 12. He was a sinner, he had the possibility of sinning again, and Paul knew it better than anyone. Temptations would always be present. Next, think about this. The apostle did not hesitate to judge a brother who was living in open and penitent sin, 1 Corinthians 5 and 3. Even though he was a sinner, even though he had the potential of committing sin again, he took it upon himself to judge a brother who was engaged in a sin that Paul was not engaged in. He rebuked the church because they tolerated this sin. This man had his daddy's wife. What are you putting up with that stuff for? man shouldn't have his daddy's wife. That's wrong. That's just wrong, wrong, wrong. You need to put him out of the church. Paul knew that while we dare not judge according to appearance, we are obligated to judge with righteous judgment. In other words, if we don't judge when we are required to judge, we sin by not judging It's a sin not to judge under the proper circumstances. But nobody in any of those sermons suggested anything of the sort. Again, Paul withdrew fellowship from blasphemers like Hymenius and Alexander, 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. He exposed Hymenaeus and Philetus as false teachers for teaching that the resurrection had already passed 2 Timothy 2:17 2, and 18. He mentioned Demas's love for the world which led him to abandon Paul 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul was just like me and you, but when he had to, he made judgment on various situations. There's just no way around it. Sometimes you got to or you let the Lord down changing the spirit of the text just a bit. I'm going to try to show it from an angle you may not have thought of yet. This is the picture that is very prominent on the internet and it's a it's followed by a great deal of compassion. You can see this woman down on her hands and her knees. It looks like she's praying or begging for forgiveness. You can see the scribe of Pharisee standing behind her yelling at Jesus, "What do you say? What do you say?" And you can see Jesus stoop down before her, the kind and Jesus riding in the sand and there's all kinds of ideas that flowed up from this particular image on the ground I found this so many times it's unbelievable where Jesus wrote it says I love you that's what he wrote according to them these are preachers now keep in mind I love you it was for the woman's sake I love you all hope isn't gone I'm kind, I'm merciful, I'm forgiving. I love you. Truth be told, Jesus stooped down and rolled on the ground. We're told that twice. But the text never says what he wrote. We don't know. I don't know, you don't know, none of us know. So maybe he did. But there's no way of knowing that. Secondly, let's look at the context one more time. The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery when they had set her in the midst. Now, I want to jump down to verse 9 because this is where Jesus and the woman interact. Keep in mind, the suggestion is that Jesus forgave the woman her sin. I want to look at their total conversation together and see what we can conclude. Verse 9, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one. Beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman, she wasn't, she wasn't down on her knees in her her face. She was standing upright. You get a different image in your mind, don't you? There's a lot of difference between a person laying prostrate and a person standing upright. Oh, I'm not suggesting that means anything ugly, but you may not see the 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 impenitent soul sprawled out on the ground when you consider the fact that she was standing before the Lord at this time and when Jesus raised himself up he saw no one standing there but the woman and then he said to her woman there are those accusers where are those accusers of yours as no one condemned you that's the first time Jesus spoke to this woman and this is the first time that woman spoke at all She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus spoke to her one more time Neither do I condemn you, neither will I pronounce sentence on you. Now you go and you sin no more. There's two things missing from the text that's obvious. Number one, she didn't ask for forgiveness. She didn't ask for it. For all I know, this woman, when Jesus said, go and sin no more, she may have went back to her favorite corner and started selling her product again. She may have done that immediately. I have no way of knowing that that's not the case. She may have been very defiant of this mock zoo court that they set up. She may have been very angry, glaring at the crowd as an angry woman can. She may have sneered at Jesus, who are you to judge me? I don't care whether you condemn me or not. And she may have turned around and left but she didn't ask for forgiveness. She didn't say, I'm sorry. There's no apology whatsoever. And then the other thing missing, Jesus never said, I forgive you. That's usually the way he would say it, I forgive you, go and sin no more. You know, it's quite possible that we might look at this account of action through the wrong lens, It may not be a a story of of great compassion between the master and this adulteress. It may have been a, a day in the life of Jesus for all I know. But all the things that are pointed out to make this a very mushy story, these elements don't exist in the story. Sound good. People like to hear stuff like that but there's absolutely no reason to believe it. Think about that when you read this sometime in the future. The point, I think, is rather clear. We're not to make unrighteous judgment against others. The scribes and the Pharisees used this woman. She was a piece of meat. That's all she was. We ought not look at people as a piece of meat. As an opportunity to get something over on somebody else. You gotta be sorry to use people that way. I know it's done all the time, but you gotta be sorry to use a person, to belittle them, to put them down simply so you can accomplish your goal or desire. But people do it all the time. And then to make the matter worse, you let on like this poor soul that you picked out of a crowd to be your rummy. You make out like this person some kind of a criminal and you try to cause a riot over their behavior. Unrighteous judgment, it's ugly, it is ugly. I watched our Congress pass judgment on Kavanaugh when he was being decided upon becoming a member of the Supreme Court and I've got to be honest, I have never in my life seen a more shameful conduct than I saw that day out of every Democrat senator sitting on that panel. Every single one of them passed judgment on that man as being a rapist opportunist, and they had no reason to believe it. There wasn't an inch of evidence but it was convenient it was convenient we can try to keep him off the court and if we have to destroy this man to do that let's do it we may have to live under this government but we don't have to act like this government and we ought not to because the Lord's watching he don't want that stuff Just be good to yourself. Be good to others. Let's have a good time.